we are told that we are fighting Islamism. You know, it's like fighting communism. You know, it's such a, a, an awful, dreadful threat that there is not a real debate about should we do it or, or what does it mean, Islamism. January 2013. In the dunes of the Sahel Desert, a column of pickup trucks heads to the Marlin capital of Bamako. The trucks are driven by some of the most dangerous jihadists of the region. They sense an opportunity amidst the civil war-torn Mali. But at the demand of the central government of Mali, France launches Operation Serval and annihilates the jihadist column. The spectacularly successful Serval operation then gave way to the Barkhane operation. Barkhane's long-term objective was to stabilize the Sahelian region, a region as large as Europe itself. But over the past years, and despite the bravery of the 5,000 French soldiers on the ground, the situation has been worsening. Just this past week, we witnessed the murder of some 160 people in northern Burkina Faso by jihadists, while Mali was blocked by its second military coup in less than a year. With the US preparing to end its forever war in Afghanistan, it seems that Europe and France are embroiled in their own Sahelian forever war. Where do we go from here? To answer that question, we are very glad to have Ambassador of France Gérard Arrault and Michael Shurkin. But before we go on, don't forget, if you want to be uncommonly decent and support the show, there's a ton of small things you can do. You can subscribe to the show, and I don't want to spoil anything, but we've got some fantastic episodes coming up. You can rate and review because these always put a smile on our faces and really help the show grow. And most importantly, you can share the show with a friend, you know, the old-fashioned way. Share it with someone you think would make a good match of uncommon decency. Now, on to the Sahel. Small introduction of both of you so that our um, followers get to understand a bit better. Gérard Roux, your former French diplomat and an ambassador de France. You've served as ambassador to the United States from 2014 to 2019, as permanent representative to the UN from 2009-2014, and as ambassador to Israel from 2003 to 2006. You are now a senior advisor at the Albright Stonebridge Group and a senior distinguished fellow at our Friends from the Atlantic Council. Michael Shurkin, you're an American expert on French and European security matters with a special focus on West Africa. You're the director of global programs for 14 North Strategies and your former senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and a former political analyst for the CIA. Thank you so much to the both of you for being on the show for what I hope should be a fascinating conversation. There's been a lot going on in the Sahelian region over the past few weeks. Um, yesterday, there was a major attack in Burkina Faso um, with uh, 160 uh, people being shot by a jihadist group. There's been another coup in Mali over the past few weeks. Um, so before we discuss the current situation, Let's go back to the genesis of all this, back in 2013. Why did France intervene in the first place? Um, what were the strategic interests that drove President Hollande to make that decision? What was the, the, the circumstances on the ground? And um, maybe, Michael, you can begin with that and kind of present, um, set the landscape of what was, it, what was going on in 2013. Sure. So um, 
my understanding of what happened in 2013, I mean, first, uh, unfortunately, it's always the case you have to back up even further than that. And, and, and the, the, the next place to back up to is, is 2012, where um, there was a some there was a, a Tuareg independence group called the MNLA, which rebelled and um, and attacked uh, the Malian state. And then what happened is that some Islamist groups um, then, including AQIM, then, uh, to use the American expression, dogpiled on, on top of uh, the Malian state and sort of joined in, 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 in the fun. And then what they did is they very quickly rolled the French, I mean, I'm sorry, the Malian state out of Northern Mali. And um, and then they turned on the MNLA and pushed that aside. So it ended up becoming a uh, sort of a de facto emirate, although run by three separate groups that were, had agreed to get along. Um, AQIM, something called, uh, referred to as Mujao, uh, and then uh, the Ansardin. And then what happened after that, or in the meantime, also there was a coup in, um, I think it was in the spring of 2012, where uh, a, a Malian army captain uh, launched a coup that toppled the elected president of Mali, which uh, did absolutely nothing good, I, I, I must say that, um, because it just added even more kind of confusion and uh, paralysis on the part of the Malian state and made it harder for the Malian state to do anything. Plus, it anchored the United States, which then froze its security assistance and the dip the whole international community was sort of aghast. Um, but then what happened is then there was a, a, a funny war, a tour de guerre that happened be, then between sort of northern Mali and the rest of Mali with almost um, a, a line of demarcation. And during this period, the, what the French government was doing was um, trying to or- rally an international response, drawing on ECOWAS, on the African Union, and also at the United Nations, to try to put together an international Africa-based intervention force to, to intervene. And all the while, I believe the French government was saying very clearly that France itself would not intervene. So, but they wanted to act through these multilateral entities. And this was the status, this is the way things were going, again, with this, this funny war, this tour de guerre, up until uh, one day in January, I, I think it's the 10th or 11th, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact date, in which suddenly the Islamist groups launched an offensive Heading apparently, it looks kind of in the direction of Bamako, and within 24 hours, the French government alone reversed his decision, reversed the policy of non-intervening, and decided to interfere and, and non-intervening and decided to intervene, all within 24 hours. And then they were they actually intervened. So French special forces who were in the area because of something called Operation Saber. Uh, were the ones who were because they were on hand. Those were the ones who were first thrown into the into the breach. And it is my understanding that the motive, Hollande's motive, was uh, had to do with the fact that the Islamists uh, apparently were making a run for Bamako. Bamako had a very, very large number, by the way, of French citizens, both uh, expats and just you know Malians, you know, these people who had French citizenship and French French passports. And so the number, I don't, uh, I, I regret that I don't re- recall offhand the number, but the number of French citizens who were in danger, in jeopardy, if the Islamists were to reach um, Bamako, was so large that an evacuation would have been in, impossible. So, uh, you know, it's just a practice in, in this part of the world that if there's a crisis, that one um, does a military intervention to simply to extract 
the citizens from the capital and airlift them out. Uh, and this has happened many times in West Africa over the past 20, 30 years. Um, uh, but the number was just too great. And, and so the reasoning is then the reasoning is then, okay, you have to stop this. And initially what the French intervention's objective was, was simply to basically to save Bamako by stopping the armed uh, offensive and halting the column. And then very quickly over the course of hours and days, the, uh, the, the objectives evolved and went from simply stopping the offensive to pushing it back and then ultimately to, quote unquote, liberating all of northern Mali. But that was not the immediate um, thinking, right? First, intervene to save and then maybe set up some sort of division like what what i think france did in in um chad under i think operation manta where they sort of drew a line like a red line and then no push push back and that's my understanding of of the reasoning and, and how that that all worked out uh, ambassador you were at the un this moment can you walk us through through that 24 hours that kind of shifted everything and uh have any kind of insights you have from from that period Thank you, uh, thank you, Francois, and it's a pleasure to be to be with you and to be with Michael, who is one of the best specialists of of French operations abroad and especially in Mali. If you allow me, you know, really, before uh, answering to your question, I think um, I think it's very important to have a debate about uh, 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 the French policy in the Sahel right now, uh, because it's very striking to me that there is not such a debate in France, right? It's not such a debate in France. We have more than 5,000 soldiers deployed, uh, doing a great job in the, in the most difficult circumstances. Uh, I think we need to have a, a political debate. On my side, I think uh, I want to insist I'm very much on the question mode. It happens that I, extensively uh, recently on the Vietnam War. And, and again, I was struck uh, by uh, really, I don't say comparisons, uh, but the fact that a lot of elements uh, which were explaining, in a sense, um, the, the, the American policy, uh, you, could see that, you could see that in the French policy towards the Sahel. You know, for instance, uh, we, are, uh, we are told that we are fighting Islamism. You know, it's like fighting communism. You know, it's such a, a, a no-fool, dreadful threat that there is not a real debate about should we do it or, or what does it mean, Islamism. I think it's a question, and that I think Michael knows the situation on the ground. Uh, I think it's an important element, you know. Uh, you know, at the time, they were saying that it's Saigon Falls will be obliged to fight on the beaches of Hawaii. And a lot of people say, oh, if Mali falls, we'll be obliged to fight in, in our suburbs. Really, is it really the case? Uh, really? And, and by saying that, we are also denying the agency of, 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 of the local actors. Uh, so there is a lot of, uh, uh, frankly, and nobody is able to define what will be a military victory, for for instance. So we need to have to have this 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 conversation. As for your 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 question now, you know, um, I've been uh, in a sense I've always been a bit provocative, but there is a big for the French presidents, whoever are the presidents, there is a big temptation. Uh, which is uh, uh, basically push two buttons on his off on his desk. 
One is the Security Council, but, uh, you know, really, when he doesn't know what to do, for ambassador at the UN, he's obliged to go to the Security Council. We are permanent member. So that's still, I should say, an instrument which makes us as a sort of great power. And the second one is the military instrument. And when you compare France, as you know, to most of the European countries, uh, you have a, a, a much easier acceptance of using military force uh, that certainly Germany, uh, but even Britain, you know, really, when you look at the numbers of military operations in which the French have been involved in the in the last de- in the last decades, it's it's really a striking uh, a striking element. And in parallel with the Sahel, we we were very active, actually, more than a lot of people believe. For instance, in Syria, also. So that's also something uh, which is particular, and that the French should be aware of it. So. On the morning of January 2013, you know, I was looking on the TV like everybody and seeing our soldiers uh, really coming uh, uh, coming to Mali, arriving in Mali. And, and uh, but I didn't know, frankly, we were not told at, and at my level, I wasn't told when we would stop in Bamako, defending Bamako. Uh, and, and to be frank, on the UN side, because there were UN experts, I heard people were really saying, oh, no, they were not heading towards Bamako, uh, really. So I don't know what, what was really the, the, the threat uh, to, to Bamako. But as Michael said, uh, it was very difficult to run the risk of having the, 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 the guys arriving in Bamako, considering the number of our, of our citizens. But very, very quickly, we saw our soldiers going north, and very quickly on my side, I was requested by my authorities uh, basically first to explain to the members of the Security Council our intervention, the legal basis of it, which was Article 51 of the of the UN Charter, the, the article about self-defense, self-defense of the Malian, the Malian government. So we had to get very quickly uh, from the Malian government a request of, of, of intervention. I'm not sure that the request came before or, or after. And, and after that, uh, we saw the deployment of our forces. And on my, on my side, I had to go to get, to get support by the UN. And after that, a few weeks later, uh, the idea of a UN, uh, UN uh, peacekeeping uh, peacekeeping. Anyways, thank you so much, Mr. Uh, Mr. Masada, for this explanation. Let's fast forward to today because uh, Mr. Masada has already kind of uh, moved us to us in this direction. Um, it's 2021. Yeah, exactly. Went straight there. Um, fast forward to today. Has the improve, situation improved that much since 2013? Um, we were talking about the latest attack in Burkina Faso, but more generally fatalities in Mali in the larger Sahara region have really surged over the past few years. There's also a major issue with food insecurity. Um, the regional armies are incapable of taking over the French army. Uh, and if you want to focus on the Malian army, there's been some pretty serious accusations of extrajudicial killings. Um, Mali has been rocked by two coups in the last year. Uh, and there's also a rising anti-French sentiment in Mali. Um, Michael, walk us through the kind of general strategic situation in the region. Is this too bleak, too bleak a portrayal? Or is the French intervention Operation Barkhane and France's large involvement in the region at this point uh, a failure? 
it's not too bleak. Uh, I mean, regrettably, the, there's no way around it. The situation is absolutely terrible, um, both from the security situation, from the, the sort of the portions of territory that are that are frankly under the control of the Islamist groups, to you know the the, the disarray that you see on in terms of the Malian political side, the Malian government with, the, with these coups. Um, uh, it's just a, it's just a mess. It's really bad. And um, but but the question of whether or not Barkhan is a failure or not is is really it's it's hard to say. I mean, to some extent, there's a, there's only so much that Barkhan can do. First of all, because it's actually very small, and it sounds like a lot, but it's small. It's really only it's at, currently it's it's fifty five thousand one hundred troops, according to the Ministry of Defense website, in an area that uh, I know a lot of. Uh, a lot of listeners, you know, might not grasp this, but the the size of the Sahel is vast, and the the distance from Nouakchott to the to Chad's border with the Sudan is almost exactly the same distance as from San Francisco to Philadelphia, and it's it's gigantic. And even just Mali is is absolutely gigantic. Northern Mali itself is about the size of France, um, you know. So when you're dealing with five thousand five thousand troops with like a dozen air transport helicopters, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's whack-a-mole. There's very little that what can accomplish. And part of what's happened is that there has been this evolution over the last few years where what started as a, you know, if you, if you go really back to the early 2000s, it starts with this Algerian terrorist group, the GSBC, that's using Northern Mali as a safe haven in order to, uh, focus to support its fight against the Algerian state. And it didn't have anything to do with Mali, wasn't concerned with Malian fights. The Malians weren't really worried about them. And and But but then what's happened over time is as GSPC evolved into AQIM and is now, you know, the, 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 everything's grown, you've gone from a sort of a small group with a particularly narrow agenda to what I just, I'm trying to describe, you know, more and more, although it's hard to be precise, uh, an Islamist insurrection, where lots of groups, native groups, I mean, th- these are Malians now, we're no longer talking about foreigners, have, and, and Burkina Bay and Nigerian, have, have found it in their interest to take up arms for all sorts of various reasons. And in doing so, they are rallying to the flag of jihad, using jihadi ideology as as sort of a way to understand the situation and also a way to make common cause with other factions who otherwise might not have anything to do with them. And it's it's been this mobilizing effect, the, the, the ideology. And it's also uh, the case where, like on one hand, the locals find in the ideology a way to mobilize Right, right. At the, at the other hand, the Islamist groups are also using local conflicts. They're instrumentalizing them in order to gain support. So there's almost a synergy, if you will, between sort of the the the, the jihadi group and its it, it, its agenda, and then local people with their local agendas and local causes and local resentments. And they're very, very intermeshed to the extent that it's very hard to tell what's what. And but because of the local nature of it, now what's happening is that 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 it's become a lot more difficult to combat. Because now, in order to fight these groups, it's no longer a question of uh, sort of taking out discrete, identifying discrete networks and battling them. It's now about, frankly, counterinsurgency, which is in the best case scenario extremely difficult to do, and it's something that Barkhan itself is is not. 
sized sufficiently to actually do counterinsurgency, nor should it be. I'm not advocating this, but but also there are also some things that make counterinsurgency extremely difficult to do in in a post-colonial setting, right? I mean, it was already hard in in Algeria where you're doing it in your own country, but um, it, it's just it's not something that France can do and necessarily should do. So again, I'm not advocating it. I'm just trying to explain this in terms of how Barkhan's effect is going to be limited. It's very small. It's not actually fighting a counterinsurgency campaign, not really, but it's it's trying to confront what's actually an insurgency, or perhaps I should say insurgencies, because often different groups are fighting for different reasons. And ultimately the best that Barkhan can do, given both its size, but also frankly current French doctrine for, for this kind of fight, is by the locals, some space and some time to try to do all the things that they need to do in order to deal effect effectively with insurgencies. And what's worrisome is that when you look at the events in, in Bamako with these coups, these successive coups, one gets the impression that while the French might be buying the Malians time to get their house in order, the Malians themselves are not getting their house in order and seem to be distracted by other things. And that I think is, is, that I, I consider to be more depressing and discouraging than casualty rates, right? Or attacks of, of violence, right? So if you ask me, is Barkhan failing? When I look at the battlefield, I say, well, not necessarily because, you know, there's not much Barkhan can achieve other than buy space and time. But when I look at what happens in, Bam in Bamako with these coups, I think, well, gosh, maybe it is because it, 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 it insurgent the fighting an insurgency in a post-colonial setting means that the intervening force, in this case the French, cannot do the hard political governance development work that the host nation has to do. All the intervening force can do again is sort of to buy some space and time, but it's. I hate to use this analogy because it involves an animal, right? But, you know, it's like you can lead a horse to water, right? So you can you can create the space. But if the Malians themselves, they're going to have their own agenda and their own, their own priorities and they're doing their thing. But it doesn't look like at the moment they're particularly focused on doing what they need to do in order to defeat the insurgencies. And then that's a troubling question. Well, if that's the case, you know, and I've seen, uh, I saw the ambassador was, I believe, I think he tweeted something about this. Like, you know, well, why are we even bothering? And that's a really valid, valid question. And that's where we get to what, what the ambassador said about how there really needs to be a debate. And and I completely agree with that. And, you know, in light, in light also of the comparison with Vietnam, the debate has to be around what does it mean for the rest of us, the rest of the world, if we do nothing and let the these Islamist insurgencies actually win? And I, I should also say that there are some, and I, I tend to disagree with them, but there's sort of some to the left of this debate in, amongst like Africa watchers, you know, like academic Africa watchers, who would point out to me that Barkhan isn't simply buying space and time. Barkhan is making things worse because by the French government, first of all, militarizing this, and then also providing cover for the Malians, Nigerian, Burkinabe, and Chadians, etc., to do their thing, but doing sort of bad things, then the French are just making it worse. And I, I tend to disagree with that because I still tend to, 
it's hard to explain it, but I tend to disagree with this idea that uh, it's, it, yes, in some ways, Barkhane and French policy is counterproductive, but I'm still not really sure what the choices are. And it's also, I don't really think that, um, uh, I think there's a tendency for people to take away agency from the Africans themselves. And I think that, that the side that's critical of Barkhane is often sort of too interested in in kind of ex giving these structural explanations for the failure of Sahelian politics, right? So because I've seen this uh, on social media, like people will say, well, because of French policy, the result is authoritarian governments, right? And coups. And, and you know, maybe French policy contributes to things, but at the same time, that to me takes away the agency of the Malians and the Nigerian and Chadian, et cetera, for for their own political choices. But part of the debate that has to be, like to bring this back to Vietnam, the ambassador is right. Once upon a time, the, 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 the best and the brightest of the Washington policy establishment, to use, I think that's Habersam's phrase, the best and the brightest, you know, people like, like at Rand or, or, you know, the think tanks and in the U.S. military and in the Pentagon were really convinced that if, if France fell to communism, I mean, I'm sorry, excuse me, Indochina, we can talk of France falling into communism, like I said, being the 1940s, uh, like 47. If Indochina fell to communism, then, you know, the dominoes would fall and it'd be terrible. And at the end of the day, actually, when Vietnam fell to communism, while the results might have been deplorable for the Vietnamese, it didn't affect American interests any way, shape, or form. It didn't hurt France. And it was actually kind of fine. And in a way, you know, I also feel like the world owes communist Vietnam a favor because they're the ones who destroyed Pol Pot, right? That has to be acknowledged. Like if it weren't for them, you know, they put an end to that genocide. That's that's great. So so were we all wrong? And that's part of the reason why I try to pull together uh, in my as I was exiting Randa a, a webinar uh, trying to pull together. I pulled together a lot of experts to debate this. Like, what actually happens if first of all, if Barkhan left, and would the area collapse, and would this be bad for everybody? And and honestly, the results of that webinar were actually very inconclusive. And and I, and I think it has to do with trying to get one's head around what does it mean to be fighting Islamists, these particular Islamists. Uh, and what is going to happen to the whole region, and what's going to happen, whether or not they're going to be downstream effects for Europe and for the United States as a result. And it's really not clear, and I was struck by, in the webinar, but also in general, the diversity of views. Um, are, we, are, we, are we reaching a point where the strategic advantages of France's involvement are really overwhelmed by the disadvantages? Or... Do you think um, a withdrawal would be a form of strategic impatience we would come to regret later on? You know, first, before reaching such dramatic uh, uh, decisions, I think uh, I think it's time, uh, and again, uh, the, to do what uh, what what Michael has done uh, with his webinar. You know, really uh, think about about to think about it. Um, it happens that uh, on my side, by chance. Two of my grand uncles were uh, uh, officers in the Camel forces, the colonial Camel forces in this part of the world. And I've heard a lot, a lot of stories about the fact that this gigantic area, uh, to quote Michael, has never been controlled by anybody. 
has always been totally uncontrollable and has always been an area of trafficking. You know, uh, in the Middle Age, it was gold, slaves, and salt. And now it's a lot of drugs, uh, drugs coming from Latin America, actually, through Guinea-Bissau, but also weapons, cigarettes, and, 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 and human beings. Uh, so, so what are we good, what are we doing in military terms? You know, in military terms, usually when you have a military operation, uh, you have to define your achievable goals, and you also have an idea about how much time it will take, you know, to reach these goals. And to be frank, right now, I don't think the French forces will be able to tell us what are their achievable goals. And uh, meaning that there will be a moment when the French forces will be able to say, mission accomplished, and we can go home. Um, if you look at what is happening, basically, we are, as Michael is saying, buying time, but buying time for whom? For the moment, as, as Michael has said, uh, nobody is really using this time to, to reach a political solution. And, and killing terrorists. You know, really, we are back to what the Americans were doing in Vietnam, counting the number of of casualties. But you know, you can kill uh, terrorists. There is always another one coming uh, coming behind. So my conclusion is that if we don't change our policy, we are there forever. You can say forever is not that bad, uh, because after all, uh, cost us one billion euros. And we have lost 60, uh, 60 casualties. We have had 60 casualties since 2013. 16 is, of course, 60 is, of course, too much. Every uh, casualty is too much, but it's something which is politically uh, sustainable. Uh, and let's, let's do it forever. But actually, and, and uh, going into what, um, in direction, you know, really given by Michael, the problem that is the situation actually is not improving, you can say that the situation actually is worsening. Uh, we saw it recently in Burkina, in the Burkina Faso, the north of Burkina Faso, and it's not by chance, because Burkina is obviously more and more actually threatened uh, by uh, by terrorist activities, we had two military coup, uh, two military coup in in Mali. Uh, we have the insecurity is is widening. So and and we there are also some basic points. Uh, we you know that over time any liberation army is becoming an occupation army. Our soldiers were greeted, you know, with some. Enthusiasm in the north of Mali in 2013. I'm ready to bet that it's it's not anymore not anymore the case. And the simple fact of having also a foreign army, especially the foreign colonial power, is also a unifying element uh, for uh, all the the groups of the for all the groups of of the region. And uh, and more we wait, uh, more we wait, more it will be the case, and more we should face radicalized opposition in the in the north. So let's let's say it very clearly: our strategy in the Sahel is in, in a dead end. So that's the moment of looking at it and saying, what can we do? You know, uh, usually <laughs> there are always the same recipes. 
the first one is called what is called a Vietnamization. You know, really you say, oh, that's to the local soldiers to do the job. And we tried it. We tried it with the G5 Sahel. To be frank, it didn't really, it didn't, it didn't work uh, very, very well. Uh, so are we supposed to leave? But as Michael has said, uh, there is a big question mark about what will happen, uh, what will happen if we leave. So as I've said, it's, um, I think, again, uh, I think that the first thing is to have a real debate uh, with specialists, with Africa watchers, especially. You know, it's, uh, I went with the Security Council to uh, Northern Mali, I think in, it, it should have been in 2014, in the spring of 2014. And, and I have met all the groups. You know, the nord northern part of Mali, uh, it's not only Tuareg. Uh, you have really uh, uh, a lot, a lot of different groups, obviously with different strategies. Maybe that uh, seven years later, maybe they are totally united, but I doubt it, uh, you know, because their rivalries are rooted in, in, in history. Uh, you know, it's basically the, the, the shepherds against the farmers and, and uh, you know, African population against North African population. And there is the, the memory of slavery, of slave trafficking. Uh, there is the virulent hostility that I felt in Bamako against the Tuareg. Uh, you know, there have been free uh, uprising of Tuareg since 1960. The northern part of Mali has never been really controlled by the, the central Malian uh, government. So you, as I, I was referring in the beginning of our conversation about the agency of the local, of the local actors, maybe uh, the African watchers would be able to, to tell us uh, better, uh, but and and here uh, it's very hypothetical what I say, but I I wouldn't bet that the army of a former colonial power uh, could be the the solution of 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 such a of such a uh, and and I think I'm not talking in terms of strategic impatience. I would. Think in terms of intellectual impatience. I think uh, uh, our foreign policy, and especially in this part of the world, has maybe been too militarized. Uh, really, our soldiers are doing a, such a great job. Uh, but maybe we should go back to be more political, more diplomatic. Uh, maybe our intelligence services, which, which are very active uh, and very knowledgeable, and which don't always share the same analysis than our Start discussing, maybe discussing with this group. And last point, maybe that we should announce uh, uh, that we are going to leave. Um, I, maybe it would be also uh, spur, it would be spur the local actors in a sense, not to rest only on our, uh, on our presence, and uh, really, they, they will feel obliged at actually uh, to take initiatives uh, if they know that we are not going to protect them uh, uh, forever. Well, and unless Michael wants to follow up on this one, and, and Michael, please feel free if you do want to, but um, I wonder what both of you are hearing in terms of the, the way that the, um, 
the larger G5 Sahel region is being discussed in EU circles, that the region itself has been mostly seen as a, and uh, uh, pardon my, my expression, but as a really a sort of a policy protectorate for the French um, that have really kind of taken up the mantle of handling all the anti-insurgency uh, operations that you've listed. And I wonder what your uh, what your sense is at this at this moment in time of what what uh, what other EU member states and even the Brits uh, what they're thinking in terms of the the wh whether it is the right time uh, to pull out and and if this is if this is any getting any closer to being more of a European uh, matter of interest. Uh, just before I, I do want to respond to to what the ambassador said. Um, uh, before we get to the EU, because I think the, the the EU is actually is of course a very important topic, so uh, you know I, I do want to get there. But um, I, I think that there is some impatience, some strategic impatience. With there's always with this kind of thing because uh, for for reasons I've never fully understood, maybe just because of the the, the cable network news service and that there's this, always this expectation of very quick results. Like we want we want something like Serval, where there was this quick thing and then Alain could say mission accomplished. And in fact, the mission was accomplished. And, uh, you know, according, you know, because Serval had achieved its 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 aims. And this is what people want. But this kind of fight, particularly because we're dealing with ultimately with this very complex social conflict and insurgencies, these these kinds of fights take a very, very long time. And, and I think that regardless of what's going on in the Sahel at the moment, I think it's always true that these conflicts take a very long time and people need to be a lot more patient. And as part of that, when we look at things that have failed and there have been a lot of failure, like, you know, I think the G5 Sahel requires a lot of scrutiny and skepticism. I think EUTM, the training mission, has been largely a disaster. There have been a lot of mistakes for how things were done, how uh, France and the international community have gone about trying to, to train the Malians and the Burkinabe, including the Americans in this. So many things were done, but so many things were done really, really poorly that I, I feel like it's it's very easy to make the case, well, okay, you tried and failed, but at the same time, you know, if you only half try and do things that look, that, that clearly aren't going to succeed, then... It, it's I'm uncomfortable with then drawing the conclusion that, okay, well, this has been a f failure and that we can't succeed and there's no way to turn this around, that none of these things can be improved. None of these approaches can be can be changed. Um, and then a lot of this, that, and then we also get to the the larger question, which again is the, the, the so what. Uh, I personally am convinced that if France were to pull out of the area militarily, that it would be a complete disaster. Uh, that even now, while things are looking very grim, I think I think that the these things would get very bad. That these countries would uh, all but collapse. I mean, they would there would be these rump states that would kind of exist and limp along. And you know, there'll be somebody who's who's pronounced himself the the president of Mali, whose authority will not go farther beyond you know very far beyond behind beyond the capital and maybe a few other cities. Uh, and that's the way it's going to be in all of these countries. And in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of violence. There's going to be a lot of anarchy. There's going to be a lot of terrible things and uh, huge populations displacement. And that's also where I think that one needs to start thinking about, well, what does this mean for Europe? So again, Vietnam fell to communism. So what? Didn't really matter for people outside of Vietnam. Not really. Uh, this area really falling to what I'm pretty sure would be anarchy that would still be worse than what it is today because it can always get worse and it will 
then is there a so what? And I'm inclined to think that for Europe, at least, there really would be a profound so what because of the geographic proximity. So whereas Vietnam, which is on the other side of the planet, could you know completely disappear or turn into, I don't know what, it doesn't matter to us. I think that if the Sahel and West Africa, because I think this would drag down all of West Africa, I'm very certain that the ramifications, at least for Europe, would be profound, particularly given the sensitivity of European liberal politics towards the problem of migration, right? We've already seen how migration has fueled extremes and fueled the far right and played a factor in Brexit. And and so that issue alone, I feel like would have, there would be very strong neg- negative ramifications for Europe. And I feel fairly convinced that the worst things get in the Sahel the worst things we'll get in West Africa, and the greater the refugee problem. But I, I also, uh, I think the ambassador and I completely agree that these, uh, I am speculating, and that these are the things that people need to be debating, right? The so what? What if it all goes to hell? Because I'm pretty sure it will go to hell. And that if the Islamist groups were to take over, it's not like some sort of we, uh, weird... Um, Kantian peace is going to involve where it's going to stabilize. You just have to remove the colonizer, right? Which I I feel like some people on the left think that that's the case. Remove the former colonial power, let things go back to nature, and then you're going to have some sort of weird new dispensation that we can all get along with and everything's going to be great. I'm not so sure. Well, first, (laughs) you know, really, before going to the the, the EU, uh, really, I would... uh, not uh you know really and rebounding about uh, about what michael has just said um let's let's also um let's not forget that there is also french pol- domestic politics and for the moment nobody is really talking about the uh, our operation in mali because it's against islamism uh, quote unquote so everybody agrees that uh, we should do it uh, and but again, as I have said, it's also because we have had a sustainable number of casualties. What will happen uh, really if tomorrow or in a few days you have suddenly 25 French soldiers killed? Uh, what will happen in six months or two years? You know, uh, democracies are not very good uh, to waging forever wars, and uh, so I would be. I think it's impossible to bet on the fact that we, we will be able to fight for the, the next 20 years. And, and that's, we are talking in these terms, you know, really, since there is absolutely no prospect of, for the moment of any political settlement, no prospect of any military uh, victory, uh, we should think in these terms. Uh, and uh, so that's the reason why I think that it's better to preempt uh, what will happen sooner or later uh, and uh, which will be simply uh, people saying in Paris, uh, it's over. we really uh, we have tried and, and we failed. And uh, so it's, it's better to anticipate uh, this situation rather than to have an ambassador leaving uh, the roof of an embassy with his flag under, under his, uh, his arm. As for Africa, uh, let's be really, and I went through that for all my career, uh, there is among our EU partners a very strong feeling that 
the French are waging colonial uh, after colonial wars uh, in 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 Africa. And as I've said, as I have said, uh, we have a, a natural uh, inclination to use the military tool uh, in a much much easier way than all our uh, uh, European partners. Uh, on the top of that, uh, the Europeans don't know very well uh, French-speaking Africa, you know, uh, because frankly, it's not the most prosperous part of Africa. Uh, and they don't have an history uh, of, of involvement uh, uh, of the Europeans, involvement, economic or political or human involvement in, in French-speaking Africa and in particular uh, in Sahel. When you are talking about to the Europeans about the Sahel, their reaction is basically a reaction of economic aid. You know, and and they are right. Also, uh, don't forget that it's a it's really uh, the population of of Mali is doubling every eighteen years. It's really it's the the place in the world where you have the the, the highest uh, demographic the, the demographic uh, growth. There is also the desertification, uh, which is linked to global uh, global warming. So their reaction, their first reaction, will be certainly uh, to talk to in terms. of of, to react in terms of, of aid. In military terms, um, there is maybe, you know, if there are uh, now European, uh, European uh, forces, um, and maybe I'm unfair, uh, but I should say that my interpretation was first, there was a lot of French pressure, French begging, and at the highest level. Uh, so at some moment, you know, it was difficult not to do anything. Second part, it's it's a very good training uh, ground for special forces, and uh, and uh, so since the Europeans are leaving Afghanistan, it's it's and since the idea is that the, the coming conflicts could be the sort of conflicts, you know, it's it's not bad to do it. You have also military elements which come but which don't do a lot, and I wouldn't give uh, I wouldn't. Uh, say which countries are, are not very military active even if they have a, a, a contingent on the on the on the gro- on the ground uh, and but I, in any case and again maybe i'm unfair and maybe i am simply reflecting the prejudice of the french military uh, but obviously uh, uh the 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 eu is uh, is doing uh, i should say more or less the minimum uh, uh, it, it should have uh, it should uh, it should have done. There is not a strong feeling in the in Europe that the, f- the fate of Europe or the security of Europe is really uh, is really at stake there. As Michael has said, I think the only element which could change the calculations of the Europeans and maybe are changing the calculation of some Europeans, you know, really, I don't really about the, uh, maybe the Spaniards or the Italians uh, is the question of migrations. Obviously, that's a question which is of a, a major, uh, a major concern, but I'm not sure that it's a very strong concern in, in Northern Europe. Last point, which has no relationship whatsoever, I should say, with the, but uh, the name, the, the name of Algeria has not been still uh, uh, really. Uh, has not been still pronounced, and uh, you know, 
when I I think that the Americans are right, when I say the Americans are right to leave Afghanistan, uh, immediately afterwards, usually I say, well, that, now it will be also the problem of the local uh, powers. In a sense, Afghanistan is more a problem for China, for Russia, for Pakistan than it is to, to, to the U.S. So let's not forget also the local actors, not only the groups, but also the countries. And, and Algeria, which has played a very ambiguous role uh, all over the crisis and is still uh, playing an ambiguous role, I think Algeria will be obliged also uh, uh, to step in, uh, which means Morocco is not far away, is not, is not also far, uh, far away. So I think that's an element that we should also take into account. Um, quick fire question before both of you go. If you had to guess... Do you think we are seeing the last days or maybe months of France's Barkhane operation? Uh, we know President Macron has suspended France's military bilateral military cooperation with Mali over the second coup. Uh, could this be the first sign of the end of an uh, operation? Um, Michael Shogun first. I don't think so. Um, I would be surprised, but but maybe it comes down to the election and whether or not Macron feels that that's something that he needs to do in order to to win the election. But uh, it's not clear to me, though, that, I mean, may, yeah, I mean, it, it depends. We can't we can't presume. I mean, uh, but I'm not aware that that pulling out of the Sahel is is a major election issue, uh, at least thus far. So uh, I think that assuming it doesn't become a major election issue, I don't see France leaving anytime soon. Uh, I was just reading a poll before this. I think for the first time, a majority of French people are opposed to Barkhane. But again, I'm not sure how potent that is and in, in will be in an election. Um, Mr. Ambassador. No, I think uh, Michael is perfectly right. You are right. Uh, I, I, I think it's the opposite. I, I should say that it will be very difficult right now, uh, considering the political atmospherics in, in France, uh, actually to campaign on the idea of Barkhane, of Barkhane leaving, which will be seen as a defeat, an abdication, and so on. I wouldn't exclude, uh, really, nevertheless, that if he's re-elected after the election, uh, if he's re-elected, maybe uh, he will have a look. Uh, he will have a look at the operation, at the prospects of of the operation, and maybe he could be tempted to to try something else. Uh, I think that's possible, and and. Uh, I'm also hoping that because it's not a, a hot election campaign, and I think that Macron is capable of being very pragmatic, that they are taking a hard look, and thus, and he'll be he'll have a relatively free hand because there's no particular pressure. I mean, I, I would also I remind you that um, as far as I'm aware, Afghanistan never came up once in the 2020 presidential election. I mean, nobody cared. Um, I mean, people might care more about Barkhane in France than Americans do about Afghanistan at this point, but but there's no, I don't know, people are more concerned about fighting over far less important things, to be honest. Thanks a lot, Michael, and thanks a lot, Mr. Ambassador, for your fascinating comments on the situation in Versailles. Thank you so much. We had a good overview of what happened since 2013 and how the situation gets worse. I think you both made a case for um, either you know, progressively leaving or keeping boots on the ground. Uh, strategic impatience versus strategic patience. Uh, so I guess we'll see. It uh, might be a hot button issue for the next presidential election. Unlikely, but who knows. Um, thanks to both of you and uh, to all our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and uh, see you next time. So 
thank you so much to Ambassador Aho and to Michael Shokin for this great um, conversation. Jorge, what did you make about this whole debate between strategic patience and strategic impatience? Well, so I thought it was so um, uh, it was so uh, coincidental that uh, the same kind of strategic dilemma is is playing out uh, with you know the U.S. Afghanistan uh, operation, which Joe Biden uh, just as we this episode got, goes to press is still touting uh, the withdrawal of, of U.S. troops from uh, Afghanistan and the kind of the, the strategic questions that played into that decision, although he's carrying over that uh, policy from, from the, the Trump administration, but essentially the, the realization that the strategic advantage of having a, a U.S. presence on the ground in that, in that country is, is just uh, surpassed by, by the, the problems that, that go with that. And, and uh, in, in, in the context of France and the Sahel, I, I just I heard a lot of echoes uh, to to the national security conversation that that, that uh, America has in, in Afghanistan, and so I thought it was really really almost fortuitous. And uh, I think the the idea of speaking of Europe's endless wars uh, also kind of it, it hues transatlantic, so it, it goes right at the at the core of what we're trying to do on this podcast, namely to um, to unpack and explain the the drivers of the the policies that uh, that emanate from from Europe and and make them um, understandable to a U.S. audience. So I think, you know, it's it's almost, again, it's it's fortuitous that, that the issue is being debated in much the same way on, on uh, both sides of the Atlantic. And I think our, our American audience is going to appreciate knowing that France is uh, is also strategically over overextended in, in some uh, respects in, in, in this uh, particular region. What did you think? Um, I thought, I thought um, Ambassador Aho was, was right to say, okay, if we are going to have this conversation about staying, um, and there's a, there's a case to be made, but we have to think, you know, 20 years term, because the situation currently is worsening. And before things get better, especially given what happened in, back in the fast area the other day, um, you know, you're going to need patience. And patience is something which is not easy in a democratic regime. Um, it's, it's only a billion euros a year, which is not that expensive. Um, you know, roughly eight to 10 casualties a year, which, which is obviously horrible, but politically manageable to some extent. But 20 years is a long time. And the risk is in 20 years, we're still here. And a bit like Afghanistan, you know, Afghanistan has said, you know, well, we can't leave because the situation is going to get worse. We can't leave because the situation is going to get worse. We can't leave because the situation is going to get worse. 20 years later, we're still here and, still, and we still have the same conversation about if we leave, the situation is going to get worse. And so now we all know the moment the Americans leave Afghanistan, things are going to get worse. There's no doubt about that. The Taliban will come back. Um, but the alternative is waiting another 20 years and leaving then and the situation is still going to get worse. It's, it's kind of a, it's a very tricky situation. I mean, I think one of the good points I was being made was the, um, another comparison between Afghanistan and, and the Sahara region is some local actors have been completely absent or very secondary. And if America and France respectively leave Afghanistan and Mali, then all of a sudden you have countries which have been kind of dozing off and uh, free riding on the security effort of these countries, which will have to kind of wake up. In the case of Mali, that will be Algeria, which is very much embroiled in domestic affairs, has been content playing the troublemaker. But when all of a sudden you have someone doing the policeman, maybe Mali is going to have to step up. And maybe the, you know, um, maybe the Malian states, maybe Niger, uh, Niger maybe uh, Burkina Faso and, and the governments also have to step up. Um, 
Speaking speaking of um, no, go ahead. No, no, yeah, I, I thought uh, the the ambassador's mention of Algeria there was um, it, it's not something you hear often. And and again, as you as you were telling me off the record, the question you got to ask yourself when it comes to making that call of whether or not you withdraw troops is who's going to fill that vacuum, right? And you know, in in, uh, in the Afghanistan context, that would be local groups, but in, in the Sahel, it, it kind of raises the question of what are these weak states going to do. Uh, policing what what happens in, inside the border, their borders when in fact there's there's more actors involved in from primarily countries like Algeria and so I thought that that mention was um, was key yeah and to go back to to the local states of Mali Burkina Faso and Niger there's a kind of a tough situation for France because often people say the reason the jihadist groups are thriving is because to a large extent for the local population there isn't much of a difference. Um, between between uh, the jihadist groups and the local government, um, and if anything, the local government, you know, and and its kind of affiliated ethnic militias are as deadly as the jihadist groups. So you know, it, it, it's it's hard to blame um, this kind of uh, maybe not support, but at least acceptance of these jihadist groups when, for them, in reality, doesn't change much whether it's the government holding the Kalashnikov or whether it's the jihadists holding the Kalashnikov. Um, and so often because of that. You get the um, you get the UN, you get all these international organisations pressuring France to make sure they pressure these local governments on human rights and governance. Uh, and obviously, you know, if um, the Mali government was was better on, on human rights and if it was a more democratic regime, things probably would get better. Uh, but it's not easy because you don't you don't have that much leverage because you, the, the Mali elites know that France is going to stay here for a little while, so it's not an easy conversation. But even if France you know, went all in on on pressuring Mali and and other other regimes. Um, on human rights and whatnot, um, France's colonial history would come back, and there'll be a constant suspicion and barrage of attacks on you know, neo-colonialism and what whatnot. So it's a, it's a very much a tough situation um, right here, um, and I'm not I'm not sure it's a down if you do, down if you don't, pretty much. Yeah. Right, right. So let me let me go off of, of just that and, and ask you um, if, if you could give our audience a sense of how the issue is playing out domestically in the political. Uh, stage ahead of the the race next year is is uh, Marine Le Pen kind of uh, staking a, a different a, a policy turn in this question. It seems like uh, the national rally is traditionally nationalistic in terms of foreign policy. It, uh, there's there, there's a, the, obviously the the, uh, the lineage of, a, of a, uh, a certain cast of mind in French foreign policy that uh, couldn't really digest the Algerian uh, disaster, but. Um, what's what's the issue being being uh, discussed? Like, I mean, what's what, what are the what are what are some of the cleavages uh, between the two candidates as, as they look at at the, the region? Yeah, it's uh, she, she. It's not her winning issue. I think she realizes that. Um, there's been a bit of a shift, I think, in the past few months. I mean, more generally, there's been a shift in in, in France on this issue. Um, traditionally, uh, you know, Mali had pretty wide multi-partisan support for this because you know stopping jihadism after Bataclan. Um, I read a really good article, I forgot where, where this, this American reporter inter- interviewed some French uh, soldiers and they asked, they asked them why they were fighting Mali and they just said Bataclan, you know, um, one word. Uh, it's, again, it's not, it's not obvious at this point that the intervention is actually doing much for the domestic security front in France, but um, I think that Marine Le Pen is going to be more opportunistic than driven on this issue, um, because if 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 Macron uh, retracts his troops, she's going to accuse him of being weak on Islamism. 
And if if he stays stays there, you know, um, she's going to make a case of how you're having boots on the ground defending people who don't want to be defended, and and, and the modern people don't even want to say what, what are we doing. So, um, yeah, it's tough. It's, I I don't think again, I don't think it's going to be a major political issue because you know it's it's a billion euros a year. It's expensive. But it's not that expensive. Um, five thousand troops. I mean, the issue is, you know, it, it constrains France's strategic capabilities outside of the region because it has so much of its energy focus there. But I don't think it's going to be a major issue. Um, and, and I think I think there was a window to leave. I think really, like the past week, second coup, um, there really was a window to leave. But now with you know 160 people, 160 people dying in Burkina Faso, I think that window is kind of rapidly closed. Um, and you know, in those kind of events. Uh, those kind of windows don't present themselves that much. And I think Macron's probably thinking about it, but uh, I'm not sure he'll get a second window of that uh, size to to exit the, the region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems uh, it seems uh, either way, back to your, your earlier point, that uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, general uh, uh, argument in terms of foreign policy is for, for a more radical uh, for pivot uh, away from like the, the traditional transatlantic system of alliances towards a friendlier uh, relationship with Russia. And uh, it seems like her foreign policy pitch uh, is, is, um, is at a higher level. And, uh, and, and as you said, uh, you know, her, her, her whole pitch of having France kind of carve out its own diplomatic stance apart from uh, the EU uh, you know, it, it kind of goes, it kind of goes in, it, it, it doesn't really offer much, uh, much it, it doesn't really uh, interact that much with with the North African uh, situation. If if uh, I mean, France is already having a pretty overextended role uh, in the region, so uh, I, I totally uh, I totally understand why she wouldn't want to. But it, it's to some extent is also a self inflicted issue. Um, France has been a bit of a pyromaniac firefighter, if you want, of the region because let's not forget we helped the Libyan rebels topple Gaddafi and we sent money and poured weapons into the region and most of the weapon well not most but a large chunk of these weapons are now being used by the very terrorist groups we are fighting the Sahel. Um you know, so French leadership was a, a bit short sighted back it's back in twenty eleven, it was before Hollande, it was before it was back it was back when Sarkozy was in office. But um you know I think the, the West has been a bit guilty of a strategic um uh, myop, you know, a bit, bit of strategic myopia on, on on Libya, and we're kind of paying the the consequences of it. I mean, I'm sure there's a case to be made that you know Libya or no Libya, the the region was was uh, going to, to 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 explode in the next few few years. But I think Libya definitely didn't help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well anyways, anyway, uh, just a very rich episode today. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week.